Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast, is a CastBox original produced in partnership with our friends at Studio 71. CastBox is the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, and all of your favorite podcasts are there, ripe for the downloading. Sacred Symbols is available wherever you get your podcasts, of course, but we hope you'll give CastBox a shot. We think it's pretty rad. To get each episode of Sacred Symbols three days before the public, completely ad-free, please consider supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. Perks for support include not only getting the show early and ad-free, but you can also gain access to monthly exclusive podcasts, and supporting on Patreon is the only way to get your listener mail read on the air, and much more. Plus, supporting Sacred Symbols on Patreon also nets you perks for other Collins Last Stand shows automatically, including the Nostalgia and Retro Podcast Knockback, the YouTube series dedicated to gaming called SideQuest, and the eclectic interview podcast Fireside Chats. Thank you for your generosity, kindness, and support. Without you, Sacred Symbols and all things Collins Last Stand would not exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast. This is episode 38. My name is Colin Moriarty. As always, I'm joined by the pizza delivery man. Chris Raygun, Chris, you look like a pizza delivery man today. I am kind of dressed like that. Yeah. Now, there's no, it's not an insult. That's a totally honorable job. We've I don't know all, where I'd be without pizza delivery men, to be, to be completely honest. My life would be totally different. It'd be hell. Do you remember? I mean, it's not like I'm like an old man. Like, we don't remember this. Of course, we remember. The days before Postmates and Uber Eats and stuff, when you had to actually call specific restaurants, and then they would send specific people out to yeah. deliver your food. I always found that a little awkward. Like, that's becoming more awkward for me as time goes on. I need to not interface with anyone. What, I'm what, do you, what do you do with the Postmates people? Well, you just tell them to like leave it at the door? Oh, I wish I could do that. It's kind of like the pizza guy in TMNT, right? Right? Like, you know, leave it, leave it near the grate and we're going to pull it into the sewer. Right, right. I can't do that. I'm actually, I have to be honest with you. Now, I order Uber Eats or something Postmates almost every day, sometimes twice a day. And 
I go out there and I wait for them. And when they pull up, I grab the food. And often, multiple times a week, they thank me. Because you see these, I live in a building, like an apartment building. You see these people roaming around with like a Chick-fil-A bag and a cup, like having no idea. Where are the people ordering the food? Yeah, are exactly. they Are they paying attention to what's going on? There's there's legions of these people stranded on the streets <laughs> waiting to deliver their goods. I do the exact same thing. I wait outside my building and then I grab it and I run away. Yeah. I sprint into the darkness. My hope, Chris, is always that they do not call my phone. That's the thing I don't like. Don't call me. In fact... In one of them, I think DoorDash, it literally says in my notes, like, do not call me. <laughs> do not. You Don't you dare. <laughs> now, I, what, what were we? Oh, yeah. You are a pizza delivery man. Yeah. So you're wearing a red shirt, black jean. Well, no, they're di- dark blue like, jeans. Yeah, I they're believe. navy. And then you have a red Spider-Man shirt on, but you have a red hat on. So you look like a Pizza Hut delivery man. Yeah. And that's cool. That's a cool job. That wasn't intended. There's probably but... some pizza delivery people listening to this right now. We appreciate your hard work. And you're endeavoring to make some money. Yeah, just don't call Colin. Do not delivering to him. Do not call me. Now, Chris, I just wanted to throw out. Now, last week's episode of Sacred Symbols had a really controversial conversation about gum. I don't want to get too much further into this, but I did want to acknowledge that this had a lot of feedback. A lot of people had a lot to say about this. I don't know if you saw it on Twitter. I don't know. Some people were really supportive of me and my anti-gum stance. Some people were astonished and thought that it was evidence that I was perhaps from another planet. So I still think it's beyond bizarre. It is a little weird. It is a little weird. But I wanted to acknowledge we're going to let that die down, that that argument die down. Good. But I did want to acknowledge that. Now, Chris, I I do want to talk about something serious before we get into anything else. There was a shooting tragedy in New Zealand. I wanted to acknowledge this just because we have Kiwi listeners. First of all, we're thinking of you. We also have Muslim listeners, a lot of you know Muslim listeners from around the world. We have a lot of Middle, Middle Eastern listeners. If you're asking how I know this, by the way, I can see like where everything's downloaded. Not on YouTube, about a, a quarter or a fifth of the audience listens to this on YouTube, but everyone that downloads the podcast, I can see where you are and where you're downloading it from. So I know we have a lot of Kiwi listeners. I know we have a lot of Muslim listeners. I'm sure we have Muslim Kiwi listeners and stuff like that. I just wanted to, I don't know if you have anything to say about it, but I just wanted to throw out there and just, you know, that we're thinking of you that Sacred Symbols is an inherently apolitical show. We get into politics sometimes and we get into religion and whatever when it makes sense, but everyone's welcome here. And uh, this is a, a place for you to be regardless. And uh, we, we just want to let you know we're thinking of you. So yeah. I just wanted to throw that out there. Very, very terrible tragedy. You know? Yeah, no, it was insane, especially that it happened in New Zealand. Yeah, a place yeah. not known for its violence, not known for its gun violence specifically. So I just want to let you guys know we're thinking of you Yeah, down there. And we hope that you are doing well, all things considered. However, Lachlan Peeney wrote into us on Patreon. Remember, you guys can write into us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand if you support the show. He said, hey, C squared. And he, and he used a little superscript, too. Oh, good. Which is pretty cool. That's effort. Kind of a topical question and one I wouldn't normally ask, but felt somewhat compelled in light of recent events and the proximity I had to the incident. And he's talking about himself in New Zealand, living in Sydney, Australia. Have you ever felt weird about killing representations of actual people in games? I find as I get older that I struggle to play games like Modern Warfare, and in particular, after the horrendous attack, FPS games in general, to a degree. I am by no means advocating for these games not to be made, but wondered if you guys had any similar experience to me in your respective careers playing games. Thanks again for your great work and insight across the CLS catalog, and I look forward to listening to you guys every week. Thank you, Lachlan, for your question. I did want to throw this out there, since it did happen, and we should have conversations about yeah. topical events when they occur. How do you feel about... Not in-game violence, Chris, but in-game shooting and kind of it is becoming 
I shoot guns sometimes and it's fun and I don't know what it's like to shoot a man. I don't know what it's like to kill a man. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know anything yeah. like that. I do know plenty of people that have in the military and they, and they talk about, you know, actually we've talked about it on Fireside Chats even a few times with different people about the different feelings they have about yeah. it. Now, I can't imagine that and I'm a pretty passive person and a nonviolent person, but I've been thinking about that in games that I've been playing recently. I was playing Far Cry, I think it was, Far Cry New Dawn, and I was just popping these guys' heads like melons, right? With like a, like, with like a, <laughs> And it was very satisfying. Yeah. But I was thinking in my mind, I'm like, Jesus Christ, like this is pretty violent stuff. Have you ever become self-aware of that when you're playing? I think I'm aware of it, but I I, th I I did kind of a video about this exact thing almost where I kind of view these kinds of games more as like I would view paintball or dodgeball in a sense that I'm, I, it's not necessarily a, a simulation of that kind of act. It's more so just outsmarting and outplaying other people within the parameters of a game or within the parameters of a rule set. I am aware that from the perspective of somebody not playing a violent video game, it looks far worse than it is for the person playing it. Like when I'm playing a Gears of War game or when I'm playing like Grand Theft Auto or like any kind of FPS, I'm thinking more strategically. I'm thinking how, oh, where's this guy coming from? How am I going to outsmart him? How am I going to get a point? How am I going to like, you know, use the environment to my advantage? Whereas the person watching is just saying, oh, he's just gunning people down. And uh, I understand that that's a perspective. I've never felt particularly weird about it, uh, but I've also been playing these kinds of games for a very, very long time, probably before I was even aware of the kind of crazy stuff that was happening on, in the real world. So it, there's not really that big of a connection for me. Yeah, it's an interesting point you make, actually, Chris, because like when we play Monopoly, which I know you don't like, but when we play the game of Monopoly, it's fake money, it's fake real estate. You're not really going bankrupt. You're playing out a fantasy and it is the same thing. And at the end of the day, playing Call of Duty is the same thing. It's you're playing out a fantasy, like you said. Yeah, but I think a lot of people think it's like you're playing out a, fan a murder fantasy, whereas I think it's more of just a competitive kind of it's just more of a competitive nature than it is right. an onslaught of violence. From my perspective, anyway, I'm sure there's some psychopaths who probably get off to playing prototype. Right. No, you know no, what I mean? definitely. And you have to be really psychotic to get off playing a prototype because that game's terrible. <laughs> I and, actually and, really like prototype. Yeah, you would. <laughs> it's interesting, though, because there are certain games that I've played where I've actually felt uncomfortable. It didn't stop me from playing the game. But, you know, notoriously, the no Russian mission in, I think, the original Modern Warfare, which is the one where you walk through the airport, and you can kill like all of these civilians in the airport. Yeah, that was, I remember that being really controversial. And I think rightfully so, not in a way where it should have been erased from the game, but that was actually a thing where you could, I believe, when you start the game, you could choose not to play that mission, if I remember correctly. I think yeah, that there was could. an option to, like, remove that mission completely because yeah, it was exactly. so controversial. I remember that being the first time where I'm like, wow, this is pretty intense. And what what is the boundary? And actually, Spec Ops The Line, which is a game we talked about not too long ago, was a game that always stuck with me because you're fighting, for, from our perspective as Americans, it's interesting because you're fighting American soldiers speaking American English, talking to each other like normally. You're, like, ambushing them and, like, popping their heads and it definitely makes you think about what you're doing in the game and I, I as long as I think we know that it's fake which we do then I don't really see a big deal with it but I, I do become aware of it every once in a while and I am disappointed and I continue to be disappointed although I like these games that we always default to violence as a way of playing a game because it's just the easiest way to represent what we what we understand as playing games whether you're jumping on a mushroom you know a toadstool or, you know, I guess you're not killing a toadstool in Mario, but you're jumping on the little mushrooms and the turtles in Mario. That's killing them. Well, that's more abstract, I think. I, right. I, I, but, but, I think a lot of violence in video games actually is kind of analogous to sports, where it's like you see football and you're just, they're tackling each other. And like, even, even in something as rudimentary as like basketball, you're just like stealing the ball from other people. There's an inherent like kind of, I don't know what it is, a, a feeling or like something that we enjoy as people of just competing with each other and just kind of making things kind of harder. 
for somebody else in the context of a game. And I think that's why those video games tend to be the most uh, wide appeal and most broadly made is because you don't need to think too much about what you're supposed to do. It lets you kind of think more about different avenues of the game as opposed to like strategy and like those kinds of things as opposed to just thinking about like, oh, how am I going to fit a puzzle into this specific thing, you know? It's interesting, though, to think about games over time, not only video games, but just how they always default to some sort of violence. It's always yeah, abstract. Sure. I'm a huge chess player and chess is an abstractly violent game. Right? Yeah. You're moving pieces from the board, you're attacking each other. And it's interesting that like even with like the games that really are prototypical role playing games, D&D and all of that and wargaming in the 19th and 20th century, yeah. all of these things defaulted <laughs> to fighting. Yeah, you're and, slaying and that's dragons. Why brought, that's why I brought up Mario, because it, it's still at the faults to fighting. I, that's an interesting thing to me that I think is very philosophical and very high level in terms of. You don't have to play games like that. There are games like Everybody's Gone to the Rapture where yeah, you don't even the encounter witness. anyone. Yeah, yeah, of course. But it is interesting that like the games we love, the games we play, we're both going to talk about the division in a little while. It's all about killing, <laughs> yeah, right? It's sure. all about killing. And you we're going to play Sekiro and it's all about killing. And, and yeah, it's interesting to talk about. Why? Why? Because we don't have Coliseums anymore. Yeah, that's well. Now, Chris, last week we asked the audience what we should do with the drop segment when we really or read the new games. And I have not talked to you about what the audience no. has said about this. I don't know what the outcome is. I went and checked election. it out. I wrote it down. So Chris and I, just to give you guys a little bit of an in- insight, Chris and I have a shared Google Doc. I pretty much write the entire show. And then Chris, you know, chimes in and makes sure everything's in order. And then we share the document and so on and so forth. The point is, is that the statistics for this are not in that document. I'm holding them on a post-it note. So Chris has actually never seen the results. Now, 1,296 people took the time for some reason to answer a poll. Good. About this. 74% or 959 people want us to keep it. 26% or 337 people want us to lose it. So we will continue doing the game readings. Some people were asking, would you replace it with something else or whatever? And I'm like, no, not really. I want the show to be in that 80 to 90 minute segment, typically at the most. And looking at the statistics of the show, I don't really feel like the show needs to be any longer than that. Sometimes the show is going to need to be longer than that, but that's kind of where I'm aiming for. So I'm not looking to replace it, but we don't have to, Chris. We're going to continue to read the games. So I want to let everyone know that's happening. Andres Avalos wrote into us and said, hey, Colin and Chris, when are you guys ever going to finish Resident Evil 2? It's literally less than a 10 hour game. I guess this man is stalking our trophies. Yeah. <laughs> I've not finished it yet. That's true. I've moved on. I haven't finished it either, but I'm also playing it on like three different platforms. Like one of them is a Twitch game. One of them's just like for my own personal. And the other one is just like I have it. And there's also just a lot of games. Yeah, like, I'm, And it, I like the idea of having Resident Evil 2 there as just like a reliable, fantastic game that I that I know is going to finish at some point that I could just be like, okay, I'm done with Sekiro. I'll jump back into Resident Evil, see what I was doing. It's not even so complex that I forget what I'm doing. It's not like a Skyrim where it's right. like I come back to it like a couple months later. And I'm like, oh my God, what the hell was I doing? I don't remember the story. It's like, it's very concise. It's very straightforward. So I'm just treating it as just kind of like this little uh, savory, you know, snack. Yeah, it's a little snack. It's a little morsel. Yeah. I'm the same way. I'll get back to it when the time comes, but I'm trying my hardest to keep up with things. And yeah. it's it's a busy month. It is. And yeah. so we'll get to it. But stop stalking me. <laughs> stop stalking my trophies. And finally, Alex Ball wrote into us and said, hey, Colin and Chris, I was wondering if you believed any of the speculation about Sony being in high level boardroom meetings to acquire Take Two with a mostly cash deal. That would mean all of 2K and Rockstar would belong to Sony, GTA, Red Dead, Bioshock, Borderlands, 2K sports games, etc. How awesome would it be if Take-Two was a Sony first party? So I wanted to bring this up just because this rumor was blazing for a couple of days last week. It was completely unbelievable from the get-go because of the amount of capital that would be required for Sony to even spend to buy Take-Two. Yeah. And I didn't believe it from the beginning. Sony has dispelled that rumor. I just wanted to bring it up because uh, some people are going to wonder where it is. It's not true. So we're not going to talk about it. I thought it was pretty... 
It's pretty obvious. I made a video actually that went up on SideQuest today about the studio Sony should buy. You guys can go check that out. And one of the things I noted in it was, this reminded me of the rumor from a couple of years ago, the ridiculous rumor that EA or Microsoft was going to buy EA. And I'm like, no, they're not. Yeah. Like that's, that's not going to happen. That's an extraordinarily expensive purchase. That's not going to happen. Yeah, the amount of money that Grand Theft Auto makes... Yeah, I mean, can you imagine why would and also why would they want to limit that uh, that gross amount of money to one platform when they're on like every place? It, it makes no sense to me. Well, the answer to that is that the shareholders would make out like bandits and so they would sell it to they'd sell it to fucking anyone. But and, and I would, too, if I were a shareholder, I'd be like, yeah, well, OK, cash deal. That's fine. Man. But the point is that Sony, I don't think even has the capital to do that and it doesn't make any sense. And so we're not going to talk about it anymore. But I did want to acknowledge that, Chris. Let's talk about what we're playing. We're both playing The Division 2. You're playing it on PC, which is interesting. Yeah, I got it on the Epic Store for free. Wait, did you get it on the Epic Store for free because of the account? Because of the account. I, oh, okay, cool. I got an offer from Epic a few months ago that I would I can get a basically an account on the Epic Game Store that would give me everything for free. This is not something that's uncommon. Steam does this yeah, as well yeah. and has done it for a long time. And PlayStation, I assume, will start doing this next generation where they're going to give you accounts that will basically let you play anything on the store. This is usually for media types. So I gave my media account to Chris. And so that's awesome. So you got the Division 2 for free. So you're playing it yeah, on it PC. Yeah, works out. So how are you enjoying the game so far? It's more Division. I certainly like it more than I did the original one. I think uh, it looks pretty great. Like, graphically, it looks great. The gunplay feels a little bit better. Moving around doesn't feel as stiff. The UI is terrible. Ubisoft, in general, has really bad UI. I know that that's not, like, that's a publisher thing, and it's not, like, a developer mindset thing that's, like, a... Uh, but... I don't know what it is about the division specifically, whereas the division one had a weird UI, but I could get around it. This one, I, I just, it's a disaster for me. I don't know how you feel about that, but it's so just, what, what, where, like in the menus, just or like the, the menus and the way everything shows up and like just the sheer amount of tutorials that pop up and you're just like the amount of, there's so much reading. I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to read any of this. <laughs> and I, I remember there was this one point where I was trying to find the quartermaster, which is like some character that you have to speak to in a hub world in, in the, uh, the white house to get a new perk. And the Stanley Parable adventure line, the thing that was taking me where I needed to go, just took me straight up to the wrong place. It took me to an empty room that had a, a vague shape in it, and it was definitely not the right place. And I was like, why is it telling me to go here? And it turns out it was taking me to the room above the quartermaster and giving me a vague-looking arrow pointing yeah, down. Yeah, I don't know. It's just like little things like that where it's just – it feels kind of clunky in the, in the UI and, and the, just the, the map and uh, – the gameplay is fine. It's just the UI that needs a, a tremendous amount of work. It's kind of, for me, a tale of two games from that perspective, because there are parts of the UI in the HUD that I really like, like the upper right hand corner radar when you're fighting is really useful. Like it, it starts showing you red bars, the red bars get thicker and stuff and, yeah. and show you where all the enemies are like I think that's a really that's cool. It's it's like actually really intuitive and it works like I almost stare at that half the time that I'm fighting. I'm not even like looking at the screen. No, which is interesting. Sure. And so there is that. But then, yeah, there is like discovering things on the map. And and yeah, the arrows that point if you're like above the altitude or below the altitude of something are really vague and really small, especially on the TV. The text is really small. Now you can make the text bigger if you want. So I'm not going to complain about that. But yeah, you're right. There are some like weird issues with it. The thing about the White House that's funny, the White House in the game is your hub world. It's not a spoiler. You like find yourself immediately in the White House. Very anticlimactic design choice from my perspective. This was <laughs> yeah. a thing that I had been thinking about only in the last day or two where I'm like, wouldn't it make sense for us to end up here like and to have like the ultimate fight at the White House? Why am I starting at the White House? Because everywhere else I go now is like not as interesting. I'm going to the National Museum. I'm going to the Air and Space Museum, whatever. And to the Washington Monument and stuff. That's cool. But 
the White House, because in Fallout 3, you remember, like getting the downtown Washington, D.C. was like a really big deal. Like you had to like really work hard to get there. And I feel that design choice is a little weird. Like I would have liked to start in the corner of the map and like work my way towards the White House as opposed to starting in the middle of the map. I know that's a little bit of a strange, wait, wait, like a strange, it's like a strange complaint. complaint. Would that have been seen as like too political or something? I don't, I don't know. know. That's the funny thing is that these guys are trying so hard to be apolitical, but it's yeah. inherently political and that's fine. I like it though. It's a looter shooter that I can play alone, which is nice. Yeah. yeah. I actually don't feel like I feel it more with this one than I did with the last one. The last one I did feel was I felt like I needed to play with other people whereas this one I, I, I am kind of enjoying the base gameplay loop enough to kind of go on by myself and not need other people there so that's that's pretty solid I haven't spent too much time with it in fairness I got it like I think a day or two ago and I've only put about around like two hours in but I'm enjoying it so far I, I don't know how the end game is going to look or like what, what it's going to be like I, I've, I've skipped every story cutscene because I hate it. <laughs> I, I can't. I can't do it. I've honestly stopped listening to the story as well, which is interesting because that's like a story that would be up my alley. Maybe it is up my alley, but I've just been listening to a podcast while I'm playing. It. It's the perfect game for that kind of to shut your mind off. Yeah. I will say that maybe it's my like waning skill at games. I don't know, but like I find this way harder than the original division. I'm dying like a lot in this game, like often. It's nice because it really does punish you. It, it seems more punishing in some way than the original division, although the original divisions, I guess, not fresh in my mind, where if you peek out of cover at the wrong time, man, like you're done. So it, it is nice. It's a methodical game. There's lots of different tools. The gunplay feels good. I'm using like a submachine gun, like an Uzi basically is my primary weapon. It's awesome. <laughs> you have to like let them get close to you, but like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's good. You can just shoot out of cover and stuff like that. And yeah, it feels great. I think it's a really interesting game with a long roadmap. And I think that's what's really exciting about it more than anything. And it's very anecdotal, but I have 2000 friends, like a maxed out friends list on my on my PSN. So I go and look at what people are playing all the time. People are playing all sorts of shit. And last night there was like 27 or 28 people playing the division two. And there were two people playing Anthem. And I was wondering, huh, what is going on in Anthem world now? Now that the division is out, because it seems like the division is being very well received. It doesn't seem like people have really cataclysmic issues with it yeah. at all. I feel and like the main cool. issues with the division just stem back to like what it is. Like people who don't like looter shooters or people who didn't like the original division are still probably not going to like it. Right. Um, but the people who did, it seems like a fairly well put together game as far as I can see. Yeah, I'm enjoying it and yeah. definitely recommend it. And I said it, I was, I was a guest on another podcast last week and I said it and I'll say it here too. You know, a lot of gamers obviously are cost conscious. You only buy a few games a year. You live paycheck to paycheck, whatever the case might be. If you're one of those people, I think that this game is maybe a wise investment because... Yeah, you get free DLC for yeah, the rest of the year. Yeah, you get free DLC for a whole year. There's a lot of game in the core game for a $60 investment. So it's one of those games where if you like, like Chris was saying, if you like this kind of game, if you like looter shooters, I hate that term. If you like <laughs> these kinds of games, then this is a really good investment, I think, for, for you to yeah. make because you won't have to really spend more and you'll get, you know presumably dozens or scores of hours out of it. The other game that I've been playing, Chris, that I want to talk about quick before we go is, uh, or move on to the news, I should say, is Stardew Valley. Now, Stardew Valley is interesting because I've deleted it and downloaded it and played it many times on my Vita, several times. And I just get it now. And I've played it for about 15 hours. I'm, I look, I think about it. I, when I get into bed at night, and I get into bed like at ridiculous hours, four or five yeah. in the morning after watching Game of Thrones or playing a game or reading or whatever, I crawl into bed and I grab my Vita and I play for like an hour or two before I go to bed. And it's what just is like it? This, it's like a farming Yeah, thing? it's kind of like Harvest Moon. It's a farming simulator, but it's more than that. Like you can mine and you can like develop relationships and farm and fish. And what's cool about it, I was reading about it because it was made by one guy, which is yeah, super Yeah, he made it for his girlfriend, right? And then he, he was like... Yeah, there's some weird story about how he was, he was like trying to get into the industry and he couldn't. And so he started making this game to show people that he could make a game. And then it just got ballooned into this 
project. And he's a multimillionaire now. The, the game has sold like four or five million copies, I think, as of like two years ago. So good for him. But I was reading a little bit about it. And the thing he was saying was that the what he was turned off about with games like Harvest Moon and I think Animal Crossing and stuff was this arbitrary time limit on everything. There's just a time limit. Like you have to get everything done. And the time moves in, in Stardew Valley, but it's infinite. Like it just goes from season to season to season to season, year to year to year to year. And so there's no rush. Like you can just play the game however you want. And I really like that. It takes all the pressure off and makes me want to play it because you want to maximize like your crop yield and stuff. But this game is just like experiment. If you don't want to do anything for an entire season, don't. It doesn't really matter. You know, yeah. like go walk around and I like it. I, I highly recommend it. I know I'm very late on this. I know a lot of you already know that. But if you're a skeptical player like I am or tried it in the past, maybe try it again. It's really great on Vita. It runs great on Vita. It looks great on Vita. And I, I really like it there. So we'll see how much more time I put into it. But I suspect that I'm going to put more time into it. Well, that's great. I did forget this to go back to the division. I did want to read this question. Nathan Cermak wrote into us, and this is a good one for us to just talk about briefly before we get into the news. I didn't want to ignore this. Hi, guys. I would like your opinion about the division, too. My brother and I have two kids each, all five and under. So we both have limited gaming time right now. I'm sorry. Neither of us are really into the multiplayer PvP experience, but we do love playing co-op together against the NPCs and AI. It basically acts like a phone call to keep us in touch with the bonus of gaming at the same time. We love games like Borderlands 2, Ghost Recon Wildlands. Ghost Recon Wildlands is interesting. That was one of the Ubisoft games that just came and went. That, yeah, that people no liked it, though, from what I remember. Yeah, but it just didn't have that stickiness, that staying power. Yeah. Far Cry 4, Rainbow Six Vegas, Terrorist Hunt, etc. We are always looking for our next fun co-op experience. My question, would The Division 2 be fun for us? We tr really try to avoid PvP as it isn't enjoyable for either of us right now. And he understands that it's a part of the game, blah, 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 blah. This is a great game for what your situation is, Nathan. Yeah. You and your brother like to just talk and fight enemies at the same time. This is exactly it. This is it. So, yeah, I would say this is a good investment yeah. for you. It's probably the best one out currently. Because, like, the, these kind of looter shooter games, they really are kind of like these weird kind of chat rooms, really, where you could just kind of kill aliens or, like, just grind for gear. And I think this is, like, a perfect one because it, it, its narrative is kind of subdued enough that it doesn't get in your way and it's not like this blaring thing. It's like, pay, pay attention to me, please. It really is kind of like, it really takes a backseat and just lets you kind of roam around. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a game that definitely encourages and, and results in lots of encounters and stuff like just even going from point A to point B. The quick travel system is a little limited in the sense that you're still gonna have to run around a lot. So you're just gonna be fighting a lot. So it's a good game for you to jump into, I think. Yeah. Enjoy, Nathan, you and your brother. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well. Whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Chris, let's get into the news. It's quite a bit to get into. Nothing major, but quite a few items. Number one, it appears a Borderlands-related announcement is imminent, and it's happening at PAX East in Boston later this month. Chris will be at PAX East. Yes, I will. Gearbox Software, the team most famously behind Borderlands, but also behind the Brothers in Arms franchise, as well as Battleborn, tweeted out a clearly a clearly Borderlands-inspired image of a highway sign indicating that all will be revealed on May t- or March 28th in Massachusetts. Word is that Gearbox may also be revealing a second game during the festivities, though it remains to be seen what that game might be. The original Borderlands recently leaked via a games classification ratings board, indicating that the 2009 original is likely coming to PlayStation 4 imminently, and maybe the other game Gearbox plans on showing off. So, basically... Big Gearbox presence at PAX East. Borderlands 3 will probably be revealed, so we'll talk about it when it is. The other game they're teasing, I think, is Borderlands for PS4, the original Borderlands, which leaked. Are you excited about this at all? I'm looking forward to this, although this game is is being announced in a climate that is surrounded by games like Borderlands now, as opposed to 2009 or 2012 when Borderlands was kind of more unique. I think they've kind of lost their window in a way, to be honest. Maybe. I think they could get a good audience if they have a good narrative, because I think that's really kind of the problem with a lot of these games is like the narrative really does take a backseat. I don't know what the hell is going on in the division. Anthem's a convoluted mess. Destiny's probably the most coherent so far, but even that one I just I still kind of don't really understand. Borderlands 2 had a really solid cast of characters that you actually gave a shit about, a villain that was actually compelling and interesting. And uh, even if the story wasn't all that interesting, it still had like characters interacting in interesting ways. So if they can keep that kind of appeal and just kind of modify it for a, a modern kind of loot based shooting genre that's way more online focused, I think they could absolutely secure a decent chunk of that pie. I hope so. I feel like this was, again, the game that they should have done immediately after Borderlands 2. I understand that studios want to flex and be out of the system and try different things but i think that was a huge mistake for them not to just make borderlands 3 immediately i know that they had the pre-sequel again that wasn't gearbox though that was 2k australia i think and so yeah i'll be interested to see what the reception is yeah also what's interesting too a lot has happened since borderlands 2 launched with gearbox like people don't respect gearbox as much anymore people don't respect randy pitchford as much anymore the aliens colonial marine shit happened Battleborn yeah, was a really Battleborn. bad idea. He has some weird issues going on with an old partner, a business partner of his. I'm not saying he's guilty of anything, but people just don't respect Gearbox the way that they used to as well. So I wonder if that is relevant at all, especially because they become more of a publisher. They have a lot of money. Oh, for sure. So, But people are still really excited about this. Like, I, Borderlands has never been like one of my favorite things. I, I enjoyed Borderlands 2 for what it was. Interestingly enough, I always felt the shooting in Borderlands was really weird and didn't quite feel correct, which is kind of... Something that they probably should work on, considering a lot of FPSs since Borderlands 2 and Borderlands 1 have come out have done a really good job uh, finding their own like kind of identity. I'm interested. I can't say I'm all that interested in playing Borderlands 1 again. That was definitely like a co-op oriented game. I could not enjoy Borderlands 1 without friends. I'm interested too. Borderlands 1, as I recall, was a little more linear in a sense too. It wasn't yeah. It wasn't linear, but the, I remember printing out at IGN, like there was a, just a list of missions, like all the missions in the game, like you could just predictably go from one to the next. It, it wasn't, in my mind, I mean, it was 10 years ago now, but in my mind, it wasn't as open. So we'll see how it all plays out. I'm excited to 
see the original Borderlands just to see if it holds up. Again, I don't understand why it wasn't in the Handsome Collection that came out a few years ago, which was Borderlands 2 and the pre-sequel on PS4. Really? It wasn't in there? Yeah, it wasn't in there. Like, oh, wow. The original Borderlands has never been re-released, and I always was a little puzzled by that because that probably should have just been in there from the beginning. Or you think that they would have re-released the original Borderlands before Borderlands 2, but alas, that's the situation we find ourselves in. So more on that after PAX East. Yeah. And remember, again, Chris will be there so you can harass him if you see him. <laughs> Number two. Turtle Rock, the studio once heavily aligned with Steam and most famous for its Left 4 Dead franchise, has revealed its new game. It's called Back for Blood, and that's with a number four. It's being published by Warner Brothers, and it's coming to PlayStation 4 as well as other platforms. While the team confirmed that the game returns to their roots, it's not associated with Left 4 Dead as a franchise, and it will be a full paid AAA game. There is no release date or even a year or window for the game as of yet. Turtle Rock was founded in California back in 2002 and was best known for its early work porting and crafting Counter-Strike games. Valve jumped into bed with Turtle Rock for a string of Left 4 Dead related releases stretching from 2008 until 2010, at which point the team partnered with 2G Games to develop and release its ill-fated asymmetric multiplayer game Evolve in 2015. It's funny, man, because this Turtle Rock announcement has gone way under the radar, way under the radar. Yeah, and I didn't know about it until you put it in the news. It's interesting because... They're huge. That's a big studio, but they are coming off of something that wasn't big for them. Yeah. And so, well, anyway, Kyle Tisdell wrote into us on Patreon. Remember, you can support us on Patreon and write into us there as well. He says, hey, guys, so Turtle Rock Studio announced their new game Back for Blood, which is essentially a direct Left 4 Dead spiritual successor. I'm absolutely stoked about it and can't wait to see more about it. The whole situation, though, reminds me of a question I continuously have about this entire industry. Why do some game developers just not listen to their fans and make the games they want to see? We wouldn't need a spiritual Left 4 Dead successor if Valve listened to fans at all and invested in a proper sequel. The same goes for something like Half-Life 3. Why would they not want to make something that the entire internet wants? Another example is with EA. Go to their Instagram and look at any of their posts in the last two years. It's literally hundreds of comments saying Skate 4, no matter what the post is about. And yet they'll never say a word about another skate game. Why the hell do some of these companies just not seem to listen? It's interesting. I think Valve specifically or Steam, you know, Valve is the company that owns them. I don't think they care about game development that much anymore. They have certain games, but that's not where they make their money. And I think that they were just looking at it and being like, well, what's the point? Yeah, we get I, literally 30% of every game sold on Steam. We don't need to do anything. Yeah. And also just uh, the expectations for Half-Life 3 are so exceptionally high that I really don't think that they could make anything that could possibly live up to it. I think anything that they make that's called Half-Life 3 is going to suck in comparison to the thing that everybody's built in their heads. There's this idea of like there's there's a silent majority out there and there's kind of like a vocal minority and that's it has a negative context but it doesn't necessarily mean it's inherently negative where you have a lot of people clamoring for Skate 4 but like let's say they make Skate 4 and who's going to buy it? It's going to be those people but maybe not a lot of people other than those. Think about how often you hear about how awful Anthem is and how terrible Destiny is and how terrible these kind of shared world shooters are and how often they're at the top of these bestseller lists. Yeah, Fallout you know? 76 was the 20th bestselling yeah, game in Fallout, North America last year. That's a perfect year. example. Nobody, nobody from what I could see liked that game, but it's sold a bunch. I feel like people think they know what they want, but they kind of don't really. And that's not necessarily true all the time, but I think publishers have to think about that too. It's like, how many people really want this? And I think that's just like kind of a risk reward kind of thing. It's like, okay, maybe we'll take a risk on this thing and maybe it'll pay off and maybe it won't. But like, I feel like most people are just kind of like, okay, I'm not really interested in taking risks. I want to make money. And I think that's ultimately what it is. Yeah, definitely. I think that's certainly true from Valve's perspective. And from Turtle Rock's perspective, I want to say Valve owned them for a little while and they don't anymore, obviously, but... From their perspective, they probably want to be like, we want to do something else. Uh, we don't want to make Left 4 Dead games forever. We want, we like this space. We want to do something asymmetric and something fun. And so they tried. So I understand that as well. Like a lot of game developers don't want to make sequel after sequel after sequel. Some, yeah. some do. 
But I think you have to look at it from that perspective too, the creativity perspective, but you always go back to the well when what you do doesn't work. And that seems to be happening over and over again. You're going to see that I think with Bioware as well, oh, for sure. starting to double down on other things because Anthem's clearly not working for them. By the way, I'm pumped for whatever the hell this is because I loved Left 4 Dead. I love that studio. Even, even Evolve, I, I appreciate, even though it wasn't really particularly well received. Just the ideas behind it, I really enjoy. And the fact that they were willing to even try that in the first place is pretty cool. I think Evolve, man, even Evolve's second season or whatever it was, 2.0 when they made it free, I kind of feel like it was still a little ahead of its time. I feel like if they released Evolve in this environment, I bet you would be received very differently. That's why it's so tantalizing to think about the franchises that can now come back that are dormant. I keep saying over and over again, SOCOM is absolutely, absolutely a series that could live again now in this environment. So Evolve, I feel like would have been another interesting game that maybe was a little bit ahead of its time in some way. The people that played it liked it as far as I know, but I didn't play it. Number three, it looks like EA Access may be coming to PlayStation 4. For those unaware, EA Access is an EA-driven monthly subscription service on Xbox One and PC that gives players unlimited access to a number of Electronic Arts titles for one low price. Sony has long been resistant to letting EA Access on its console, but that seems to be changing after the service was briefly spotted on the Brazilian PSN. A Reddit user posted an image of the PlayStation Store with the EA Access logo in one of the clickable boxes, with available now written underneath it in Portuguese. While neither EA or Sony has yet commented, it seems safe to assume that EA Access is coming to PS4, and it's coming soon. So if anyone's interested in that, it's just another subscription service you have to pay for. I'm not especially tantalized by it, but a lot of people do like that on Xbox One, so that might be, if this is true, an option for you very soon. Keep an eye on that. Number four, I have terrible news for you. A new Sonic the Hedgehog game is in development. (laughs) Word comes by way of website Gamatsu, which reports on a panel from South by Southwest. At a Sonic-centric panel at the yearly event in Texas, Team Sonic confirmed that something new was forthcoming, while remaining largely focused on Team Sonic Racing, launching on PlayStation 4 and elsewhere in mid-May. The last two Sonic games, Sonic Mania and Sonic Forces, were released in 2017, and both are available on PlayStation 4. (laughs) Oh, man. New Sonic game coming up. Why was there a Sonic panel at South by Southwest? What is going on? What do you mean? People are pumped, especially with that new movie. People are excited about Sonic. I know you don't want to admit it, Colin. Are they really excited about Sonic? I mean, I'm excited. <laughs> I really want to see what that new Sonic looks like. Trash. I mean, it, it looks like I mean trash. one man's trash is another man's more trash. Yeah, well, that's true. You almost got it. <laughs> Number five. Remember the PlayStation 4 exclusive game Wild? That was revealed all the way back at Gamescom in 2014. The game is being led by Michelle Ansel, the creative force behind the Rayman franchise and Beyond Good and Evil, working both with Ubisoft and on the latter sequel while cultivating his own team called Wild Sheep. However, ever since the game was revealed nearly five years ago, we've learned absolutely nothing about it, save for a second trailer in 2015 during Paris Games Week. Indeed, it's long been speculated that the game is no more, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Intrepid internet users have discovered that Sony has filed a new wild-based trademark in the U.S., indicating that the game isn't only in development, but might also be nearing a re-reveal or perhaps even release. So Wild was this game that was revealed at the last Gamescom I went to. That was how long ago this was. I was there. And... It's like this game where you basically encapsulate an animal, like you can go into an animal and be the bear and you can be the eagle and you can be whatever. So you can possess animals. Yeah, exactly, basically. And it was a game that was announced right after PlayStation 4 came out and at Gamescom. And it was a big deal because Michelle Ansel, like I said, is really well known for Rayman, really well known for Beyond Good and Evil. And he seems to be splitting his time now between Ubisoft and his own studio. And this game was long assumed to be vaporware. And it seems like that's not the case anymore. So maybe we'll have more information on that soon as well. Maybe it's a next-gen game. Maybe it is. Number six, No Man's Sky's long-tail post-release support continues unabated, this time with a multiplayer experience called Beyond. As you may recall, No Man's Sky came out in 2016, and while it found an audience and sold well, it was a critical dud and has been widely panned since launch. 
Last year, after a prolonged period of silence, Hello Games, No Man's Sky's developer, revealed and released an expansion called Next, which revitalized the game for some, and Beyond hopes to continue that trend. According to Hello Games lead Sean Murray, there are three key components to Beyond, the details of which will be rolled out in the weeks and months ahead, but for now, all we know is Beyond is coming, so No Man's Sky marches on. That's such a good story, honestly. Just the story of that entire game is interesting. It is. I wonder, they're a small team, I think they're a dozen strong or so. And I wonder, you know, No Man's Sky sold well. They probably made an enormous amount of money. But I do rec- I do really respect that they stuck with the game and didn't just move on to something else or make something else and try to forget. You know, try, let's forget about this. I think their name, really like their reputations, relied on them doing this. And so I think it's cool, too, for people yeah. that are into it. And I remember when they announced the last expansion, which I, I forget the name of that, Sean Murray released a video or an audio of their, I guess, audio chat room on, what's that service called? Discord. Discord. And how excited and there are people that really love that game. Yeah. And so I think that this is for them. I don't know how many of those people listen to this show, but it will be coming to PlayStation 4. Number seven, the somewhat innocuous actions of a famous Japanese voice actor has placed the Western release of one game in jeopardy and forced a major publisher to replace his voice acting in another (laughs) game. For starters, on last week's show, we told you that Yakuza spinoff game Judgment was coming to Western PS4s likely this summer. However, that release has already been put in jeopardy. Multiple sources note that Pierre Takai, or Taki, I'm sorry, who gives voice to character Kiyohei Hamura in the game, was arrested in Japan on suspicion of cocaine consumption and possession. Drug possession in Japan is an exceptionally serious charge. As a result, Sega, which has already released Judgment in Japan, has pulled the game, and it can no longer be purchased at either retail or digitally in the country. Reports also indicate that Square Enix is following Sega's lead, kind of. Mr. Taki also voices Frozen's Olaf in both the Disney film and more recently in Kingdom Hearts 3 in Japan. The publisher revealed that it will be replacing his voice in the game via patch. That's crazy. So it's such an extreme... <laughs> it's, it's absolutely outrageous. So here's the story. is Apparently this guy, as far as I know, pretty well-known voice actor in Japan. Yeah. Apparently had cocaine in his system when tested, but had no cocaine been possession in his possession. Now, I know someone that I used to work with that accidentally went to Japan with marijuana in their bag. Like during one of the trips that he I wasn't even with him during this particular trip, but went there like he just had it in his bag. And then he got through customs and he had marijuana. If he if they caught him with that marijuana in Japan, he would have went to prison. That, that's how serious it is there. Holy and Jesus. So I asked him, I'm like, so did you like I would have been hard, more I'd like to flush it. And like, he's like, no, I smoked it. And I'm like, you, so you brought the weed to Japan and then you smoked it. Dude, I smoke weed every day. I wouldn't smoke weed within a 5,000 mile radius no. of Japan. No, absolutely not. That you would know? terrify the hell out of me. People can go read about the drug laws there. They're really fucking serious. Really, really, it's really, crazy that they really would just serious. like, repl- like replace them like that in a patch. That's <laughs> so wild. Yeah. So apparently this is a big deal. And I was reading this morning, although it's not super relevant to this audience. Maybe it is because maybe this game will never come to the West. I doubt that this is really going to interrupt anything for us. But the game, apparently, because it was pulled off stores, is already being like spiked in prices. Like you can buy Japanese versions of it for an enormous amount of money now. Well, yeah. So the market speaks. Number eight, website Push Square reports that Joe Carnahan, who is one, who is at one time attached to the Uncharted movie as the screenwriter, completely went off on Neil Druckmann during an interview on a show called Disgusting Film. Did you see this or anything about this? This is really weird. No. As you know, <laughs> Neil Druckmann is VP of Sony-owned developer Naughty Dog, who cut his teeth on the Uncharted games before writing and leading the development of The Last of Us and The Last of Us Part Two. However, he also stepped in as co-lead on Uncharted 4's reboot once Amy Hennig departed the studio. In the interview, Carnahan notes that he was really only concerned about Hennig's opinion on what he wrote and that he doesn't much care for Druckmann. Quote, ultimately, I want to make Amy happy. It was her creation. I think what's his face? I'm not a fan. The guy that kind of stole credit for it. Now, at this point, the person says Neil Druckmann and he says and he says, yeah, that jerk off. 
whatever. There was a bit of saboteuring there going on with Naughty Dog. Amy created that world and she was the one that I really wanted to please. The other guy, whatever the hell his name is, he's a hitchhiker, end quote. The Uncharted movie has gone through many starts and stops over the last decade, and though it's attached to a new director, it's unlikely to ever see the light of day. That was pretty wild. Yeah, uh, wow. Some, I should say that Neil Druckmann's a personal friend of mine. I know Neil, and this is not a representation of him at all. He's actually a really nice guy. But I, I, there's some beef here that we don't know about, it's I guess. It's so weird. It's so candid, too. It's like an actual conversation that's like not happening on camera. Yeah, no, definitely. And what's what's interesting about this, I guess this Joe Carnahan guy who's a writer in the film industry, what the hell does he care? I guess this isn't really going to hurt him with yeah. his people. So I don't know. I, apparently, according to him, he's a jerk off. But that's not the Neil Druckmann that I know. That uh, that movie also is not happening, by the way. Yeah. No, for never. Sure. Yeah. And uh, it shouldn't. I don't Who know cares? why. We, yeah. Number nine, it's finally time for Battlefield 5's Battle Royale mode Firestorm to be released. Oh boy! You may recall that Firestorm was originally supposed to be in Battlefield 5 from the get-go, but was unceremoniously delayed, leaving just the core Battlefield 5 single-player and multiplayer experience upon the game's launch in November of last year. However, we now know that DICE's Battle Royale experiment is due out on March 25th and will be obviously free for all that own the game. This particular Battle Royale experience will support 64 concurrent players and will take place on a map called Halvoy, which is apparently the biggest Battlefield map ever concocted. Cool. Will you give a will you give a go? I still haven't played the Battlefield Five campaign, which is still on my cross media bar. I mean, the campaign is is fine. It's entirely forgettable. Battlefield One's campaign I thought was great, even though if it, even I though it was so the, too. Yeah, yeah, it was it was nice. It was it was an interesting way of doing it, but this this time it just kind of fell flat. The multiplayer I couldn't stand because I, I don't know if I went over this when we first talked about it, but every time you got downed, you'd be stuck waiting for someone to save you. And you couldn't do anything. You couldn't change your loadout. You couldn't do anything. You had to just sit there and wait like a baby, like an infant, waiting for somebody to pick you up from the throes of death. And it was awful. And I, like, I stopped playing it just because of that. But the gameplay is actually fine. So I'd imagine just because I own Battlefield Five, I'll probably check this out because it probably won't have this stupid infant wait to save me mode <laughs> going on because, you know, Battle Royale is typically one life. I'll check it out. I, I think it's late. Yeah, it's very it's late. It's a bit late. It's especially... also competing with their own game. We often talk about Sony and how maybe they should release more games and they're not releasing very many games and stuff. But then you look at EA just competing with its own games. And maybe it's just a cautionary tale that Sony actually has the right idea. You want to have a good balance. Yeah. I think you don't want to go too long without doing anything, but you also don't want to throw your own products under the bus. Seems to be their specialty. They just do it over and over again. It's yeah. very weird. They do. 2016 with Titanfall, Titanfall too. And it was very weird in Battlefield 1. Like, they just killed Titanfall 2. They killed it. Which it was, was the best FPS that they've made, by the way. Very strange. Number 10. Developer Rebellion revealed a bunch of Sniper Elite-related news this past week, according to IGN. For starters, Sniper Elite 5 was revealed to be in development, the fifth mainline game in the franchise that Rebellion began way back in 2005. A release window or target platforms have yet to be revealed. However, we do know that in addition to the new game, Sniper Elite V2 Remastered, a remaster of the 2012 original from PlayStation 3 and elsewhere, will be coming to PlayStation 4 later on in 2019. The last Sniper Elite game, Sniper Elite 4, came to PS4 in 2017. Have you ever played these games? That's the game, that's the series where you can like Mortal Kombat x-ray people's testicles, right? right? Yeah, I think that's the one. I played Sniper Elite 4, that was like the first one I really jumped into when it came out, and I want to like it more than I do, like I like it, it's a serious first person shooter like it's very serious like the bullets have arcs and like you have to like time everything it's like a and sim almost yeah it's really wild like it's i wanted to like it much more than it was i like the idea of it a lot these massive maps with troops that are independently doing things and you just have to slink around and get your targets like you can get in and out without killing anyone kind of like hitman it's like a finer made hitman in a way and rebellion's good i i saw them at e3 a few years ago i went and spoke with them and played their games behind closed doors nice guys very passionate yeah about this series because this is what they do 
So cool news if you're into the series, and uh, we know now that a fifth one is incoming. Number 11, a new official DualShock 4 color scheme has been revealed, and the controller will be launched for all in April. Dubbed the Alpi Alpine Green DualShock 4, the controller is a forest green color with bright white buttons and sticks. It will cost $64.99 upon launch and will be available in both the U.S. and Canada, though its availability in other territories remains to be seen. It looks absolutely beautiful. I want to get it. Nicole Schneider wrote into us on Patreon. She says, hello, Colin and Chris. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Yeah, I'm okay. Oh, yeah, we got a little allergies, but I'm good. I'm usually not one for buying new controllers unless mine finally breaks, but with the release of the Alpine Green controller, I'm seriously thinking about picking this one up, which led me to wondering how many controllers for current systems do you own, and what do you think the chances of an Elite-style controller for PS5 could be? Is this, I, the, is this the controller? That's it. This looks hideous to me. Oh, I think it looks great. I personally enjoy the idea of a modular controller more than the console itself. Want more battery? Take off the light on the controller. Don't want the feel of the triggers? Swap them with buttons. Do you find offset joysticks more comfortable? Replace your D-pad. Or how about the idea of a toggle button right on the controller to invert your axis instead of digging through every different games menu? The possibilities are endless. Oh, oh. What an asshole. Who's calling you? Uh, some British friend. People can't be calling. No one should be calling anyone. Stop talking. I don't like it. On the phone. I'm muting it. What the hell? I'm not mad at you. I'm just oh, mad at no, I'm mad at anyone calling anyone else on the phone. It is frustrating. It's not what phones are for. Sorry about that. This is 2019. This is not what I don't care. <laughs> now to Nicole's point, how many of these controllers do you own? How many PS4 controllers do you own? I think I have like five. I have about. Like I think I have four. They're all kind of like I have two black ones. I have the red Spider-Man one and one white one. I would love a PlayStation Elite controller. The Xbox One Elite controller is so. So good. Dude, it's fantastic. It's a fantastic controller. It's funny, Chris, because Sony just doesn't put in the care in their controller ecosystem that Microsoft does. Microsoft has still that cool thing where you can just design any controller you want. They'll make it. Like, oh, yeah, the custom one. Yeah, like that's super fucking Get it cool. engraved and stuff. Yeah. yeah, like and you can get like sports logos on it, any color you want. I know that this is probably not a massive moneymaker. Sony probably looks at this and is like, this is absolutely not worth us to do this. Or this is going to be so expensive that no one's going to buy this shit. But I don't know. I like that Microsoft has been paying more attention to input. And they've been paying attention to input, not only with that controller for disabled people, that kind of oh, yeah, adaptive like a, yeah. controller, yeah. But also like the Elite controller and they've always been listening. And I like the Elite controller and, you know, Nicole, I hope that they do release something like that for PS5. But in the meantime, you know, I bought the vaguely Islanders colored controller that's orange and blue that looks more like Mets really, but it's vaguely Islanders colored. This one is vaguely Jets colored, even though it's <laughs> more like Eagles colored. So I'm definitely going to buy it. The white buttons and the white sticks look fucking cool, man. I think it pops. Yeah. But the red controller, I think, has that as well, right? The white yeah, sticks. Yeah, the, the red one does. I like it. I think I just think that green is like an eyesore. Really? It, it, it's forest green. It reminds me of those early 90s like Ford Explorers that everyone had. <laughs> you know how every you know how every Ford Explorer was the same color. I got such a vivid image in my head. Like, I know exactly. You know what exactly talking what I'm talking about. about. Every <laughs> Ford Explorer from 1990 to 1993 or whatever was that same green color. I know because my family had one. Everyone had the Ford Explorer, just, the same Ford Explorer. Yeah, there's something about it that it just it doesn't look like it's committing to being green, and that's what bothers me. The mm. non-committal color. Oh, interesting. You know, it is a deep green. It's a deep green, but it's also like I could be blue for some people. Wow, if you're fucking colorblind, you can be blue. Yeah, yeah. Number twelve. A, a tweet from developer The Behemoth seems to indicate that Castle Crashers may be coming to PlayStation 4. Yes. And by the time you hear this show, it'll likely have been confirmed. For those unaware, Castle Crashers is a side-scrolling beat-em-up that came out way back in the summer of 2008 on Xbox Live Arcade and was one of Xbox 360's first major digital hits. It was later ported to PlayStation 3 in 2010. The Behemoth, known for Alien Hominid as well as 2013's Battle Block Theater and 2018's Pit People, tweeted out a picture of the four colors of the four knights in Castle Crashers, all with DualShock 4 controller silhouettes over the colors. Seems like a port may just be imminent. I absolutely love that game. Castle Crashers is fantastic. Really great game. 
Uh, really, really great game. I don't even know what to say about it, really. It's just, you should play it if, it if it's actually coming to PS4, which it looks like it is. That was really such an amazing Xbox early. Not early. It came out three years after Xbox 360 launched. But in the digital ecosystem, it's up there with Shadow Complex and Geometry Wars and a few other games that were immensely important to Xbox Limbo. when they were starting their digital initiatives. Limbo. Yeah. Yeah. I played the hell out of that with my friends in high school, and it was uh, fantastic. Beautiful art style in the game, too. And I love the dissonance between the outrageous violence and the cute characters that's a little more common now in some stuff but that was really quite unusual back then it was awesome it was uncommon in the console space and i think that's why it kind of flourished the way it did because that that kind of style and it even was like it was a flash game but like you could go on like addictinggames.com or like uh new grounds or any of these uh old like flash sites and you would find games that have similar like kind of aesthetics and similar like ideas where it's just like really cutesy violence happy tree friends comes to mind mm. uh, from back in the day but like on a console like that was the first time that I had played anything like that in a proper, not AAA, but very, very quality controlled ecosystem. And it was so good. Play it. Play, play Castle Crashes. That's another game where I can't believe they didn't do a sequel. You know? Yeah. They, again, insisted on doing other things. Now, again, who, who the fuck am I to judge these people for doing what they want? Sometimes it works out. Like Supermassive Games continues to make games that are bigger than the last one, really. And they, they didn't make Transistor 2 or anything like that. But I don't know. Like Castle Crashers probably could. They probably could have squeezed a lot out of that, you know, before they moved on to Pit Super people Massive. I'm, I'm sorry. Supergiant. Uh, Supergiant. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, Supergiant. I'm sorry. You're right. No, they're, they're so... Uh, <laughs> I can't gush about Castle Crash. But the Behemoth in general makes really like interesting, like weird little Flash-looking games. Yeah. And they're really cool. I really actually like Pit People. Yeah, they're very Xbox-affiliated. Pit People's not even available on PS4. Is it really not? No. Oh, I think I played it on PC, I think. Yeah, it's PC and Xbox One. And I think Battle Block Theater never came to PlayStation either, but I could be wrong about that. Chris, number 13 is a wrap-up. Ooh. According to Gamatsu, Leisure Suit Larry, Wet Dreams Don't Dry now has a firmer release window. Do you like that firmer release window? As well as price, it'll come to PS4 in early summer and will cost $39.99. I love that name, man. It's a great name. The website also reports that adventure game Far Alone Sales is PS4 bound on April 1st and that the Australian Games Rating Board has classified something called Castlevania Anniversary Collection as submitted by publisher Konami, though the nature of this compilation, including which games it will contain and what platforms it will land on, remains to be seen. All I have to say about that is fuck yeah. Castlevania Anniversary Collection, give it to me. Give me more Castlevania. Yes, that's fantastic. I was so excited about it. I wanted to make that its own thing, but there's just nothing to say about it. So I yeah, had to throw it in just, here. It's just great. Meanwhile, Attack on Titan 2 Final Battle has been rated for release on PS4 via the Taiwanese Games Rating Board, although it's likely some sort of special release of the already launched Attack on Titan 2 game from last year. The PlayStation blog reports that racing game Xenon Racer and PSVR game Skyworld are both due out next week on PSN. Website Push Square reports that Sega's Space Channel 5 is coming to PSVR at an unknown time in the near future, and that free-to-play game, action game Dauntless has been delayed on PS4 until the summer. And finally, Bethesda has confirmed that it will be at E3 with a press conference which will air on June 9th. The only game, as far as I can tell, Chris, that they've talked that will be there is Doom Eternal. Ooh, I'm so happy. So we're going to see more about Doom Eternal excited. June That's going to be an interesting 9th. press conference, by the way, given, you know, everything. Yeah, well, I'm interested in a few things. With some of these press conferences, right? EA won't be there either. But with yeah. Ubisoft and with Bethesda, Sony's only way to squeeze in now is through those two companies. And I wonder if they're going to have anything at these, like anything, not exclusives, obviously, but if they're going to have some sort of deal or like, you know, Doom Eternal comes, DLC comes first to PS4 and here's Sean Layden to talk about it. I wonder if they're going to do anything like that or if Sony's just literally not going to be there, you know? And it's just going to be all multi-platform. I would be so. surprised if they swear it off entirely and there's no announcements of any like kind of like, hey, here's here's a uh, free DLC for this character and whatever the right. hell on PS4 first. I, I'd be surprised if there's nothing at all like that. But 
don't know. Who knows? Bethesda's typically in bed with Xbox, so that would be a big boon for PlayStation to do something like that. Mm-hmm. But who the hell knows what's going to happen? PlayStation is so frustrating, I think, to Bethesda. If you read between the lines, I think that they're really annoyed by PlayStation, especially with like all the snap uh, pack or map things that were having problems and then the mods. And oh, yeah. Like yeah. The PlayStation just doesn't let them do anything they want. Cross platform play like they just seem to hate PlayStation. And because remember, we talked like months ago that Pete Hines very publicly said, like, this is fucking annoying. Yeah. You know? And you know, like, <laughs> so who knows? Who knows? It doesn't seem like maybe they have that great of a relationship, but that's just speculation. Chris, it's time to talk about the new game releases. Yes, it yes, is time good. to talk about the new game releases. Survived. Chris, will you go first or will you go second? I have no... I'll, I'll go first. Yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. I'm not trying to trap you. I don't believe that. Always <laughs> <laughs> Awakening comes to PS4. Always Awakening is a game that tries to stay as close as possible to the authentic 8-bit look with sweet pixel art, a soundtrack filled with catchy chiptunes, and so much charm it'll bring you right back to the golden age of video games. That game looks cool and it's supposed to be good, so I'm really looking forward to playing it. American Ninja Warrior comes to PS4. Do you have the strength and endurance to jump, swing, and sprint your way to hitting the buzzer at the end? It's really vague. <laughs> Race against the clock with your friends and family while testing your skills in couch multiplayer or take on the challenging career mode. That sounds like it could be a fun let's play for us in the future, Chris. Yeah, it doesn't sound bad. Chocobo's Mystery Dungeon, everybody comes to PS4. Explore an adventure through the challenges of countless dungeons, battling monsters with the new buddy system, and gain amazing abilities and outfits with the job change system to beat the beasties? Yeah, beat the beasties. Beat I guess. the beasties. Now, this was, I don't, Chocobo's Mystery Dungeon. It's a Final Fantasy thing, right? Yeah. I don't know which one this is. If this is a brand new one, this series goes back to PS1, I think. I think so. I think you're right. So I don't know. But I know that Square, remember Square Enix a while ago said that they're releasing all these games for all the platforms. And the big, if you guys remember, the big announcements were that they were bringing a bunch of shit that's already on PlayStation 4 to Switch and to Xbox One. But buried in there somewhere was this game. Yeah. Like that this game was actually coming to PS4. So there it Weird. is. Cube Zone comes to PS4. Cube Zone is a frenetic puzzle game. Think fast, match the color patches on the board, or drop them all before you reach the end. It may seem easy at first, but different maps and varied mechanics will put your reflexes to the test. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Fate Extella Link comes to PS4 and PS Vita. The digital realm of Seraph, with several periods in the word for some reason... Faces a new kind of threat, and heroic spirits from across the Fate series have joined forces to defend it. In Fate Extella Link, you'll hack and slash your way across dynamic battlefields with polished graphics, detailed character customization, and refined gameplay. Peasant Knight is coming to PS4 and Vita. Peasant Knight is a challenging puzzle platformer that you can play with only two keys, jump and stop. All the while you're relentlessly dashing forward into traps, enemies, and hazards. Peasant Knight has a tongue-in-cheek tone that fits well with many ways to reach your demise. I have it written in our thing here as Peasant King. Which is a very different thing from a peasant knight. And yeah, very, really very any, different. Doesn't really make any sense. Actually, neither of those names make any sense. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Sekiro Shadows Die Twice comes to PS4. Uh, you are the one-armed wolf, a disgraced and disfigured warrior. Bound to protect a young lord, you become the target of many vicious enemies. When the young lord is captured, nothing will stop you to regain your honor. Not even death itself. It's fucked up. I'm so excited. Yeah, looks great. That's a Friday release. Mm-hmm. So when this goes public... For everyone, you will be able to download it. SNK 40th Anniversary Collection comes to PS4. I'm very excited about this as well. 2018 marked the 40th anniversary of legendary studio SNK. To celebrate this extraordinary milestone, a variety of classic arcade games from SNK's golden age are coming back together in one anthology, packed full of retro games and a treasure trove of features. Super Kickers League comes to PS4. The best arcade experience and football fantasy are waiting for you in Super Kickers League. 
There are no referees. There are no rules. Everything is allowed. The only aim is to score more goals than your rival. The messenger comes to PS4. This is great. As a demon army besieges his village, a young ninja ventures uh, through a cursed world to deliver a scroll paramount to his clan's survival. What begins as a classic action platformer soon unravels into an expansive time-traveling adventure full of thrills, surprises, and humor. Can't wait. There's a lot of shit I want to play this week, I'll tell you. Yeah, the messenger is actually fantastic uh, from what I've seen. War Theater comes to PS4 as endless conflict rages. Seven warriors discover an ancient power that promises mastery over any battlefield. From the developers of Plague Road, uh, War Theater expands classic turn-based strategy gameplay with RPG elements. Nice. So we have a question from Patreon that I want to get to in a second. But before we do, there's a lot of stuff here. Always Awakening is supposed to be good. The Messenger, Sekiro. The Messenger, Sekiro. SNK 40th anniversaries for me. I don't know if a lot of people would like that. So a lot of stuff, not many releases, but actually quite a nice number of, of quality releases here. It seems. Yeah. Connor Johnson wrote to us on Patreon, just like you can said, hey, Colin and secular Chris. I don't know why he's calling you secular Chris. We're both <laughs> we're both secular. You're an atheist. Yeah. Yeah, me too. With Sekiro, is it Sekiro or Sekiro? Do we know? Do they? Uh, we must know. Right? Sekiro sounds like more American to me. So yeah. I, I've always I've just been saying Sekiro. Yeah, I think you're probably right. All right, so let's call it Sekiro. Sekiro coming out, and both of you saying you want to play. I'm curious about your experiences with Bloodborne, Colin. I know you played a lot of it, but didn't finish. Will you ever go back? Perhaps for the platinum, Chris? Did you play it? And if so, did you? What did you think? To me, it's a perfect game. I finished it multiple times, and despite popular opinion, I actually don't want a Bloodborne too. It's one of those rare games that I think is already immaculate and doesn't need a sequel. Needless to say, I'm very excited for Sekiro. Stay sexy. Or Sekiro. I gotta get that right. That's whatever. Whatever. Stay sexy. Do you play Bloodborne? Are you in, 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 into Bloodborne? Because this is obviously a very similar game. Yeah, I did. It didn't, um, it wasn't something that I played like constantly or that I just couldn't wait to get back to, but it was something that I, I played for a little bit and appreciated. I got distracted by other things and never really got a chance to go back to it. I'll probably go back to it at some point, probably during the summer lull. I, I was never really all that into the Dark Souls games because I always felt like they were a bit janky and like I didn't really care for being stapled to the ground all the time. I have a I have a really tough time being stapled to the ground in, in games. Like I like jumping and like movement, but yeah, something about Bloodborne made that a lot more tolerable. I think it just it felt like a lot more of a AAA game to me. It felt more polished. It felt more fluid. It didn't feel as janky. Uh, it felt like you could play it aggressively, which was something that you really couldn't do in Dark Souls unless you like had the proper build for it. And this one, to me, looks like it remedies literally every problem I had with any other from release. It looks polished to hell. It looks like you can do all sorts of things. It looks like you can you have a lot of mobility. And it's got a theme that I really like. I, I, I miss the Tenchu kind of theme in video games that we don't really see all that often. So I'm, I'm super pumped about it. I have to say, aesthetically, just in the very little I've seen, it looks like Neo, which is another game that takes place in a similar setting. Neo, I really do want to go back to. I really, Neo was a big surprise. I think uh, Koei Tecmo was quite pleased that that game hit the way it did. And that's obviously getting a sequel as well. So we're getting a few of these games. For me, Bloodborne is, as I think a lot of the audience knows, I played it when it came out and for a little while, but actually in 2017, I played it extensively. I probably played it for like 60 hours and really got into it and really liked it and got almost to the end. You guys can look at my trophies to see how close I was. I was pretty close. And then I got distracted. And that's a game you cannot get distracted from. When I went to go back to play it literally the week after or whatever, I'm like, Especially when you're that deep in the game, I'm like, I have no fucking, yeah. I have no hope now. Like, yeah, it, it, I'm sure I'm going to have to restart it. So I, I want to get back to it. Chris, let's end as we always or often do with eight questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas from the audience. Remember, if you support us on patreon.com slash Stand, not only do you get early ad-free access to every episode of this show and the other shows I do, but you can submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas. It's the only way to appear on our show. 
Let's do it. Byron Willman wrote into us and said, I just bought South Park's A Fractured But Whole. Hilarious game that I have gotten sucked into, which doesn't happen to me with games very often. I'm obviously going to pick up Stick of Truth, but are there any other games of this same mold of hilarious, addicting RPGs that you would recommend? So first of all, the South Park RPGs are fucking awesome. Excellent, excellent games. Obsidian made the first one. Ubisoft at San Francisco made the second one. Really, really good. I've heard nothing but good things about them. Fantastic. I played a little bit of, of some of them. I think turn-based stuff is just not my wheelhouse. Yeah, it's not only turn-based, but it's grid-based. So it's almost got like a strategy role, especially the second one, almost like a strategy role-playing game thing going on. Yeah. They're pretty, they can be pretty tough at times, too. I'm not a huge South Park fan. If anything, you know, I've always appreciated it. I watched it when I was a kid. I mean, South Park came out when I was in eighth grade, which yeah. is amazing. When <laughs> it's you think crazy. About it. It's still going around. Yeah. And because uh, <laughs> I remember the Jesus, like one of the early episodes of Jesus, I remember watching it with my dad and him being really offended by it. And I was in eighth grade. So... <laughs> <laughs> South Park's been going on forever, and actually the games convinced me to go and start watching the show again. They're on Hulu, and I've been watching some of the shows, and this is this goes back a couple of years now. But these games, I just want to say again, are so good. Just so, so, so good. And as far as, like, analogs to it, I don't know if you can think of any, Chris. I can't. Like, games don't make me laugh very much. This game is outrageous. These games are outrageous. <laughs> They're pretty ridiculous. I love, there's a great scene in the second one in Fractured But Whole where you're fighting strippers in like a strip club. Yeah. And it's like so funny, man. I was like dying laughing, like the things they were saying. They're kind of one of a kind as far as I'm concerned. There are funny games out there or games that try to be funny, but these games are authentically like, like Erin would sit and watch it as if she was watching like a South Park episode almost, you know? Yeah, it, it, well, it's got that appeal too. It looks exactly like the show. It's wild. The first thing that came to mind when comedy was brought up and comedy RPG was like this weird Xbox Live Arcade game that is on PSN too. I, I don't think it's on PS4. I think it's it, you'll have to play it on PS3 or probably PC. I'm not super sure, but it was it's a Ron Gilbert game who uh, is the Monkey Island guy. Like they, I think they did like a couple things with Lucas Arts, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. But they came out with this weird like $15 game back in oh nine. I want to say like 2009 or 2010 called Death Spank. Oh, it's funny. I was, uh, yeah, that just came up in the audience last week too because that's one of the games that people want us to play together. Really? Yeah. I really liked that game back in the day. I, I watched some gameplay of it like recently and it still looks like, oh yeah, that's actually funny. So I could imagine like if you want like a comedy RPG, it's not turn-based, it's more of like a beat-em-up kind of game that kind of has some RPG elements. I remember that game cracking me the hell up when I was a kid. Yeah, there's a sequel to it as well, I think. Yeah, I think so. I but I, I do one. think they are stranded on last-gen hardware, if I recall. Yeah, it's a damn shame. Nathan Haller wrote into us, Chris, and said, hey, guys, this one is more for Chris, but I'd appreciate Colin's input as a Sony stan. I take a little bit of issue with that, although I know you're being serious. Anyone who listens to this show knows that I'm not a Sony stan. <laughs> yeah, you're pretty break. hard on them. They barely talk to me. With Microsoft and 343 Industries announcing Halo, the Master Chief Collection, coming to PC and also giving fans the choice to purchase it through Steam, are we finally starting to see the play anywhere mentality that Phil Spencer and his company have established since he took the reins? Seeing Microsoft not only add their biggest franchise to a new platform in PC and being okay with bringing it to Steam, do you also think the news that Xbox Live is coming to iOS and Android is another example for this argument should Sony follow? So Chris, what do you think of this? This is a big deal in the... The Halo community, which you are very much embedded in. It's pretty huge. It's a pretty big deal just because, I mean, it's an FPS, and FPSs are pretty at home on PC, I think. There's a lot to unpack. I think a lot of this is really solely because console manufacturing is so ridiculously expensive. These manufacturers make are making these systems at a loss, so you have to wonder, like, I think there's, like, a shift in how Microsoft is thinking about exclusives because exclusives are typically like, hey, you come out with a, The Last of Us and people want to play The Last of Us. Where can they play The Last of Us? They need to buy a PlayStation 4 to play it. But I think the thinking is kind of more like, why do we need this big release in the hopes of making money on our consoles when we could just 
make this big release available to as many people as we possibly can and make as much money as we possibly can. And having that available to everybody at once, I think is an interesting way of, there's so much going on with Microsoft that I'm not even sure how to really talk about it because it's so weird and not at all predictable. This is a very different side of the console industry that we, I, I don't think we're really prepared to predict. Yeah, I think we don't have all the information yet. Yeah, it's, it's really tricky. I, I, like whether or not this is a good thing for them, and I, I assume it will be just because a highly wanted exclusive on a platform that pretty much everybody owns is probably going to rake in a lot of money. I'm betting that maybe in five years, maybe Xbox isn't a console anymore. I think it's maybe going to be an app. I think that's the missing component. I think that we're in an evolutionary stage with Microsoft particularly where it's a gambit, and I think it's probably a reasonable gambit. We're also, by the way, recording this. This is going to go live, I think, the day that Google announces whatever it's doing with oh, games yeah, too, which like... I don't think... I talked about that on the podcast. I guessed it on. I don't think it's going to be anything that's... I don't think it's going to be what people think it is. Like, yeah. I don't think it's going to be a console the way you think it's going to be a console. Yeah. I think it's going to be a streaming thing, and I don't, I, the controller looks terrible, and I don't think anyone's going to care. But that's my personal opinion. We'll see We'll see how it all turns out. Yeah, I don't know if Sony should follow. I think Sony should do whatever whatever is working for them, and what's working for them seems to be whatever they're doing. Sony is particularly in a state where they need to be more iterative, more iterative than innovative, and Microsoft kind of needs to be innovative because they're obviously the underdog here. Uh, Sony's been wiping the floor with like everybody for the last couple years. So I'm excited to see what this means because I think this is the first time truly that every single console has a very, very different way of existing. Yeah, we don't know. We don't have all the information yet, right? This is why I think E3 is going to be so phenomenal for Microsoft simply from an informational standpoint, because then we'll finally get an idea like the fog of war will be lifted and we'll be able to like see, all right, like this is the way the, the battle's forming. This is the way the field looks because... Sony's being very quiet, and it does seem like Microsoft is going more into a brand-centric point of view, which it's funny, man, because they're only doing this because they're losing, but this actually might be the right choice. Like, they might have actually stumbled upon the proper long-term solution by failing, relatively speaking, in the main, right? By getting outsold three to one by their competitor, they might have actually unintentionally stumbled upon the long-term solution, which is to make Xbox a brand. And when you look at the long game, they can't all be right. They can't. Yeah, because you have, what do you have? You have Nintendo going on this weird hybrid route right like low power hybrid big tentpole releases attracting old games etc yeah and you have microsoft kind of spreading their software all over pretty much every ecosystem that they can and you have sony kind of sticking with the kind of tried and true kind of basic console like the the normal kind of thing that we expect we'll see how it all pans out of course but i think that microsoft's on to something i think whether or not we want to admit that or whatever you know as gamers i don't know but I don't want that. I don't want a future where like I'm playing on my phone or my tablet or I'm using a controller and this and that. Like, And I do think we're getting more trapped in the console ecosystems, which is good if you like the old school way, because especially if you're an Xbox gamer, it's going to be really hard to justify moving on to the next platform or going to back to PlayStation when you have all these games available to you now and stuff like that. It's getting very complex. It's yeah. getting very complex from a consumer standpoint. So, yeah, I'm super fascinated by all this. Me too. But it's crazy. I had a bunch of people like reach out to me from like back in high school. It was like, did you hear about it? <laughs> did you hear they bring it to PC? Because they don't play. I have friends who like just don't play console anymore. Well, I was thinking about you when it happened too. And I will say that um, to be perfectly fair, Sony might go down this road as well. I mean, we have no fucking idea. Yeah, that's true. We, that's don't, the we point. have no like, idea. Do I think so? No, I don't think so. But I don't they, think so. They either. might. I don't think they're in a position where they need to. And I think that's why they're not doing it. James George wrote into us. He says, now that DMC5 is out and it has received critical acclaim, Chris also really likes it, it would be interesting for you to compare the trajectory of two very Japanese companies, Konami and Capcom. 
Several years ago, both companies were very much in a downward spiral. However, over the last year or two, it's become apparent Capcom is making a strong recovery. He notes DMC5, RE2 Remake, Monster Hunter World, RE7, Mega Man Collections, etc. While Konami continues to struggle, a lazy Castlevania collection, Metal Gear Survives, sitting on the Fox engine, etc. What's your take on this situation? What do you think has allowed Capcom to make some of the most well-received games lately? What's keeping Konami from doing the same? So first of all, it's true. I've been mulling on a video for a while. Capcom has had an amazing resurgence. Oh, yeah. Without, without a doubt. Like, they really were in not great shape for a little while. And, you know, probably midway late in the PS3, Xbox 360 era, like, no one gave a fuck about Capcom and what Capcom was doing. They kind of fumbled a little bit with some fighting games. They were not releasing high-quality stuff. They were giving us bad Resident Evil games. They weren't giving us good Mega Man games, etc. They've definitely turned it around. And I attribute that to just listening. Like... Capcom has the advantage of having some first party or some, you know, internal tethers in North America. They're a very global company. They understood that they needed to learn what Western studios were doing. Konami, on the other hand, I don't know that it's not like Konami. It's not like Konami is just like fumbling around a burning building. People have to understand that Konami as a corporation in Japan is very reliant on other stuff to make yeah. money. And they simply don't care about video games. That's, because yeah, that's, So it's, it's not so it's not that they couldn't make games or that they won't make a quality game again. It's just that they don't care. You know, like that's what it is. I think Capcom just kind of fumbled and Konami just straight up doesn't give a damn. Yeah. Konami makes their money, as I'm sure a lot of people know, like they they run these health spas in Japan. If you go to Japan, and you take the train around, you see Konami logos on the side of buildings like they have like a presence in people's lives. Right. In a different way outside of video games they are also very much into pachinko and gambling machines yeah so if they're looking at their stats or whatever and i've been reading about konami actually quite a bit because i'm working on this longer video that i want to do eventually this year about their history and where they're going you know if you look at their numbers they even say in their own releases and stuff like we have multiple pillars and like these pillars are making shit tons of money and so if you're japanese i think you understand what konami is and i think if you're american or western and you only interface with konami as a publisher and developer of video games then you expect that there's something else while capcom is a video game company you know, Konami's not a video game company. They're an entertainment brand. Moise Khan wrote it and said, hey, Colin and Chris, why do AAA publishers finance and develop objectively terrible games that have no hope of selling well? <laughs> Example, Square Enix published The Quiet Man and more recently Left Alive. These games aren't tied to a popular IP, so it's not like they're cash grabs exploiting the fans. It's just weird why some companies don't cut and run as soon as they know something isn't shaping up well. There are very few objective facts about any video game. What it runs on, what its frame rate is, you know, who made it. Otherwise, I don't know that things are objectively good or bad. We might really feel that way. Like, I objectively feel that that way about things. Yeah. But we got to be careful about that. Yeah, like Sonic. <laughs> exactly. Like, I think Sonic is objectively terrible. But of course, it's not objectively terrible. People love it. Like it. So it's subjectively terrible. So, Moise, I, I want you to look at it from that perspective. Now, why do they invest in these games? I think that they invest in them because probably, A, they're cheap. So if you're talking about a game that made you know you're talking about triple a publishers financing objectively terrible games but we have to talk about the level of finance how much did the quiet man cost them to make really five million bucks something like that it's not that much of an investment and maybe they'll lose on these games but they're seeing and they're exploring and i think you i think you want studios to do that i think you want publishers to do that explore maybe yeah. the quiet man could have turned into a major franchise for them i don't know i i think that's why you do it it's just just see Things happen. Yeah. You got to take risks. You know, sometimes you have to hit the same horse over and over again, beat the same horse over and over again. That's what CD Projekt did with Witcher. No one cared about Witcher 1 and 2. I, I want to remind everyone about that. No one cared. They had their little niche thing. They weren't incredibly well made. And then they made Witcher 3 and everyone cares about the Witcher now. So if you start hitting the beating the same horse, sometimes you get that outcome. But more often than that, I think you get a different outcome if you just try different things. The man only known as Gene wrote into us, Chris. I'm going to assume <laughs> this is Gene Wilder. Yeah. Even though he's dead. From beyond the grave. Hey, Colin and Chris, how are you guys doing? 
My topic concerns people who don't like turn-based combat in JRPGs. This is why I wanted to put this in there for you. And it's always been strange to me as to why they can't get into the style of combat, yet they play Pokemon, which also has turn-based combat. What are your guys' thoughts on this? Well, I think that's somewhat of a generalization. Chris, I wanted to ask you, because I love turn-based combat. Why don't you like turn-based video games? Because the thing that I'll say about them is that it's the most coherent way to play a game. This is the way we play every non-video game, really, with the exception of a few examples, you know, card games and so. Yeah, yeah. But like if you play Monopoly or Battleship or Clu- like everyone's taking turns, if you're playing D&D, it's turn based. If you're so why is this different? Yeah, well, I hate board games. <laughs> no. OK, well, that's I, I don't like playing board. games. I just think when I'm playing a video game and, and the possibilities are like endless of what I could be doing, you know, I could be in space doing crazy shit. I could, I could be uh, Commander Shepard, you know, doing some crazy stuff with aliens, you know, fuck and them like, even fuck them even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas, like, I feel like in that context, existing in a fantasy world where I just have to sit and wait for my enemy to attack me, even though I'm very in the mode of, like, I need to attack him, it just feels, there's, like, some disconnect. There's some games that I like it in, like, I enjoyed Final Fantasy VII when I was uh, younger. I enjoyed uh, Child of Light, because I thought that was, like, a nice little mix. Because that was, that had some real-time elements mixed into the turn-based. Yeah, I think it's something, like, a lot of turn-based games have generated things where, like, you have to do button presses at a certain time, even if it's turn-based, to get more power. I think I just need engagement, I need yep. consistent engagement because otherwise it's kind of like the, it's for the same reason that I don't like a lot of Battle Royale. Like Tetris 99, I don't know if you've played Tetris Battle Royale. No. It's great because it's consistently engaging. It's a Battle Royale and you're knocking players away, but you're still playing Tetris the whole time. It's not this like, oh, you landed, you found a gun, now you're just wandering aimlessly across a hellscape waiting for things to show up. Just the feeling of... Watching an enemy do something to you that you can't retaliate to just feels weird to me. And it just it a game needs to be pretty exceptionally well made or it needs to appeal to me on some other aspect like the art or the story or the soundtrack. It needs something else to pull me in for me to uh, really get involved with the gameplay in, in that way. It's interesting because you're certainly not alone there. A lot of people hate those kinds of games. I don't hate it. And to be fair. Well, you don't you dislike yeah, them. You they're don't not my favorite. Them. Let's say that you don't prefer them. And I don't know if I necessarily prefer them, but I like them. I think a really nice solution began with Final Fantasy IV and has been kind of initiated in a ton of role-playing games since, which is like the active time battle, which is kind of a mixture of real-time and turn-based. So like everything is based on, and your turns are based on speed. So like, you know, enemies go quicker, you go quicker or whatever, but it's still turn-based in that way. But if you just let the bar sit there when it's full, then you're just not going to move and any enemies are just going to keep attacking you. So I think that that's a nice solution to keep people active and engaged as opposed to like Final Fantasy I, where you can let this, you can just let it sit there forever. And as long as you don't do anything, nothing's going to happen. And yeah, so yeah. I understand that argument, but I think that there's a place for action RPGs and active combat. And I think there's a place for a turn-based combat. I love when, you know, new role-playing games come out with turn-based combat because it is a nice old school way to play. But I understand yeah. that it turns a lot of people off. That's what I was saying when we were talking about Dragon Quest XI the other day. Should we recommend this to someone or whatever? It's very traditional. That is a very traditional game from that perspective. Right. It literally will just stay there until you, like, use the menus to fight, you know, and... The menus to fight is another thing. Yeah. If I play a game, I want to be the person doing the cool thing. I don't want to be a hand picking a thing that tells a cool person to do a cool thing. Right. It's just the level of separation. That makes sense. I understand that. Yeah. Chris, we have three more questions to get through. Brad wrote in and said, there's been some recent chatter about the future of PS5, Xbox potentially being discless or having a discless skew. Just to be clear, the rumor right now is that there's an Xbox One S that might be coming out that's discless. 
but that's the only thing we kind of know for sure. Theoretically, would the total elimination of the disk drive also effectively eliminate price competition by third-party sellers like Amazon and slowly drive the cost of digital games within the PS4 ecosystem upward? Who dictates final price on all of these distribution networks anyway? Would love to hear your thoughts. Well, pricing is usually determined by the publisher of the game and they yeah. can charge whatever they want. Sony usually takes a 30% rip of that. So Sony obviously wants them to charge as much as possible, but you still will push more games if you charge a less amount of money for them as they learned with Ratchet and Clank. I don't know that I'd buy this economic theory that removing the Amazon pre-owned market or whatever is going to drive costs up. I think that this market drives costs down. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I don't know how it works out any other way. We've seen this already happen on a ton of other marketplaces, so I don't see why it would be any different here. Just as an example, on iTunes, you pay like a 99 cents or a dollar 29 for a single. But if you multiply that by 10 tracks or 12 tracks and then adjusted for inflation, you're paying way less for your music now than you were paying for it in the 90s, right? Yeah, you already exactly. know that video games are way cheaper now than they were in the 90s. They're just getting cheaper. So I don't see the market working out like that. I don't either. I, th I think especially with the absence of discs, even if they kept it at 60, they'd still be making more money. They would inherently be making more money. Yeah. That's right. So I think that, again, digital marketplaces just increase competition and drive costs down. But the other side of the coin is that driving costs down is not necessarily a good thing. There was a argument with iOS gaming a long time ago, you know, the whole term of race to the bottom comes from the iOS market about how games, you know, when iPhones were new, were actually $10, $20. And no one was paying that. And they, they just totally undercut each other until no one could charge anything anymore. And that's the thing that is really problematic to any incubated system. And that's why Sony has to be really careful about that. In other words, keeping premium prices is good for developers and it's also good for players. And if people start undercutting each other, then no one's gonna make any money. You're not gonna know what good games are and what bad games are, or at least have an idea of what propensity they're gonna be. So there's a lot to think about here. Do you think that's what's, ha what's happening with uh, Battle Royale? In a way, I think that Battle Royale, it's low barrier to entry, makes money through whales, but also eliminates a bunch of its competition, right? It is an inherent sub race to the bottom within the greater PlayStation ecosystem. I don't know that it's really good for PlayStation. I don't know if it's good for Microsoft either, but no. I think fewer games being released is a good thing. I think charging a premium for good games is a good thing. I think developers and publishers making their money on games that are great is a good thing. And again, the $60 price point, you better start adjusting your expectations because that's not going to be $60 for much longer. I would be shocked beyond all expectations if PS4, new PS4 games were 60 bucks. That would be fucking shocking. Do you think so? Yeah, shocking. If discs become completely gone, if, if discs go the way of the dinosaur, which they kind of already have, it's kind of latching on. Because I, I know I don't use discs anymore. I just don't. I don't either. Unless a publisher sends me a game once in a while. I think the last, I think it's in a box. I have. <laughs> the last game I got from a, a publisher, in like physical, was from Bandai Namco. They sent me Tales of Asperia in a box. Yeah. But that's the only reason I have this. The, yeah. the, the game I bought in the box before that was... Well, Metal Gear Survive, I guess, which I still haven't opened. That's funny. I, the last disc-based game I bought, I think, was Metal Gear Solid Five. No. So that was in, back in 2015. 2015. And even that was abnormal for me. Zach Bryce wrote into us and said, Hey, Colin and Chris, do you think Ubisoft will go back to their other franchises like Splinter Cell and Prince of Persia soon? As a fan of the Prince of Persia trilogy on the original Xbox and PS2, I can't help but feel like a new entry is due sooner or later. Furthermore, should they bring collections to PS4 for both respective franchises? What's the strategy for companies like this? Wait till there's little to no interest in their current lineup before going back to established properties that they know fans will love? Just thinking out loud, loving the show, guys. Keep it up. You can speak to this, Chris, because you're a big Splinter Cell fan. Yeah. I think a major reason why Ubisoft hasn't revisited some of these franchises is because there's no reason to right now because they have so many things going. There's no reason to distract from Assassin's Creed. There's no reason to distract from The Division, Steep, whatever these other games are. That, you know, For Honor, Just Dance. I mean, there's, you know, a lot. Trials, yeah. Fusion. There's a shit ton of games that they have. So I think that they're waiting. Far Cry. 
you know, Far Cry again. Yeah, great. Another great example. So there's no room. Now, Splinter Cell is definitely coming back and Splinter Cell has long been rumored to be in development. I don't know what they're doing with it. Prince of Persia, I don't know anything about. But how do you feel about this, Chris, especially you being a Splinter Cell fan? I mean, it's pretty, I want a new Splinter Cell. I miss Splinter Cell a lot. I think a collection would be pretty cool. They did that on PS3. Yeah, they have a collection uh, on PS3. Because that's, um, that's how I managed to get my hands on them again. Because I have the PS3 version in my New York place, in my parents' place. No, I, I would love to see a new Splinter Cell. I don't know how big Splinter Cell is now compared to how it used to be. I, I'm sure it's always been kind of like this weird kind of semi-large niche of uh, players who really appreciate Splinter Cell. Uh, I'd imagine it's an even smaller niche for Prince of Persia just because it's been a long time. Was there even a Prince of Persia collection? I don't even think so. I can't think of any. There might have been. There might have been. On Xbox 360 and PS3, maybe. Yeah. I don't know, man. But no new Prince of Persia game or Splinter Spell game at all this generation. Yeah. I've never been a huge Prince of Persia fan. I know a lot of people really like that game or those games. I was never that into it. I'm not really. I, I think the last one I played was on the original Xbox. And Splinter Cell is fine. Splinter Cell was very Xbox centric for a long time and then it kind of went multi-platform. But I don't know. I don't know what the future holds, but I can't imagine that. I can't imagine either of these franchises are going to be dormant forever. I I think that you'll just watch Ubisoft at E3 one year and there will be one or there will be the other. You'll be sick in uh, uh, the 2020s. Splinter Cell anniversary. (laughs) Splinter (laughs) Cell, yeah. Like a crazy good looking Splinter Cell. It'd be wild. I wouldn't be surprised, Zach, to see both of those games in the future and Splinter Cell especially. Chris, the final inquiry comes from Brandon Wall. He says, hello, Colin and Chris. First time, long time. Recently, I saw a rumor that speculated that Ghost of Tsushima could be released as early as June of this year. And I was wondering if you think this could be possible. I personally don't, as I think the game looks too next gen in terms of graphical fidelity and the way the grass or whatever it was in the demo at E3 of 2018 moving individually in the wind. Thanks for all the great content. I recently became a patron and got to say I'm loving it. Also, thanks for introducing me to Chris and his YouTube channel, which I also am now hooked on. Keep making Tuesdays great again. Thanks. By the way, I tweeted at Donald Trump twice in the last week i tweeted at him do you want to play the division with me he didn't answer and then i tweeted at him make tuesdays great again and he didn't answer to that either that's a shame fucking asshole what a dick a lot of people have bad things to say about this man and i understand but those are the things that bother me the most why are you ignoring me yeah that pisses me off especially now chris there's no way that game's coming out in june (laughs) no i mean all right so brandon i think what you're kind of in a roundabout way of saying is that you don't think ghost of Tsushima is even a ps4 game now, I, 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 now, I don't think so. Huh? I don't think so, actually. You don't think Ghost of Tsushima is a PS4 game? The closer we get to this winter without hearing anything about it, the more I'm convinced it's just like, nah, maybe not. Well, they are very clear. They do the same thing with Death Stranding, right? They always say it's running on PS4, right? They're always very clear about that. They keep that. it open in case. But that doesn't really mean anything. Because of the x86 architecture and the ability to bring these games up, they can be even more beautiful and more robust. Now, I still think Death Stranding is a PS5 game, and I think that it might be on PS4. I think Ghost of Tsushima is a PS4 game. No doubt in my mind about that. Is it coming out in June? No. It seems like the way things are lining up now is Dreams is going to be kind of in an early access in the spring. The summer, who the hell knows? This might be when Medieval comes out, something like that. And then in the fall, it looks like maybe The Last of Us is actually going to be the game that comes out in the fall which would be interesting because Sony very rarely releases fall games. Spider-Man really being in that ecosystem was very unusual. They usually don't mix up there. They usually let the third party speak. But I don't know, Chris. To me, I look at it and, you know, again, Brandon, it's an interesting inquiry, but I don't want people to get too speculative or too conspiratorial, you know, like conspiratorial, I should say, where everything's a PS5 game or like, you know, I really don't. It would be weird if this wasn't a PS4 game. Maybe it'll... Beyond both, but it'll inherently, I think, be on both because it's going to be backwards compatible. That, that's true. It's, it's another thing. It's like, does PS5 game even really mean anything 
when it's across this weird cross generational junction. Yeah, we're point. we're gonna find out not this year probably, but it'll be very exciting for us to find out when the time comes. We might get little inklings again with what Microsoft does and how they talk about their consoles. We can assume that certain things are going to be true for Sony as well, right? Because yeah. these things are also going to be true for the, all the third parties that they both deal with. So I don't know. But yeah, Ghost of Tsushima is not coming out in June. <laughs> There's no chance in a soft, supple hell. I, I think Q4 or Q1, you'll see Ghost of Tsushima. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine though that game just drops in June? Can you imagine that game just drops at E3? Yeah, like they, they lied to everyone and they actually just have a presser. No, they don't even have a presser. They just drop. They just drop. Hey, it's also not happening. No, they did do that at E3 one year, though, when they released that game Entwined Day and Date. But that was from Pixel Opus and no one really cared. Not, not, not a very good even. Not a very good What game. was that? It was like a weird flight. It's an art game. It was not. It right, was, okay. They're making Pixel Opus, I think, is making a game called Concrete Genie, which is a PS4 exclusive that comes out this year. But who the fuck knows? They're kind yeah. of an internal team. Not not of any consequence, though. Yeah. Chris, that's all I have for this week's Sacred Symbols of PlayStation podcast. Wow. It's over. It's over. It's over as quickly as it began. It's a shame. I hope you guys all enjoyed it out there. Thank you so much for listening to us. Remember to support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand for early ad-free access, the ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas, exclusive shows, and much more. If you want to be a freeloader, that's perfectly fine with us. We appreciate you. Leave us nice reviews on iTunes and elsewhere. Tell your friends and family about the might, the majesty, and the wonder of Sacred Symbols of PlayStation podcast. Chris, do you have any closing comments? No. no. It doesn't surprise me, really. Yeah. I, we already talked about everything. Yeah, that's what true. Gonna, hey, guess what? I'm not afraid of clowns anymore. You're lying about that, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. It's a distinct lie. Well, we'll let you get back to your pizza deliveries. And uh, for everyone out there that it's listens to the show. It's a noble profession. Colin. It is. It's a perfectly noble profession. Perfectly noble. Hey, I've done all sorts of shit. I think as long as you're making a living and you're not doing anything like untoward or illegal, good for you. I put price tags on toolkits at Sears. I shoveled shit out of horse stables and... Uh, Cleaned bathrooms and picked God, garbage horse, out of horses are disgusting. snow piles and did all sorts of things. Oh, my, that was my first job when I was 14 years old. I worked at a stable and my entire job, 25 bucks a day. My entire job was to just move a horse out of one stable into an empty stable, clean up the poop, put the horse back. I just did that all so day. So you have experience with horses. So you know that they have these weird scenarios in their lives where flies just dance on their eyelids. Yeah. They're really, in their eyes. They're really weird. There was also what I remember. And a, they're fine with it. There are a few horses that I was not allowed near as well. Like there were a few horses that wouldn't that didn't deal well with. Yeah, they'll scoop your face off like a, like the cream out of an Oreo. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. It's wild. Chris, thank you for your time. Appreciate you. Appreciate all of you out there. We'll see you next time for more Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast. Until then, goodbye. Take care, guys. Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast is fan supported over at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon. And I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Eric Alley, C.J. Anderson, Morgan Ashley, Sean Battershaw, Martin Beck, Michael Betts, Eric Bishop, Mark Boggio, Eli Bosford, Barrett Boswell, Spencer Brand, Miguel Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Matthew Brousseau, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, Dylan Burns, Chris Buston, Alex Cabrera, Brian Cacciatolo, Will Caldwell, Patrick Harper, William O'Carroll, Brian Caulfield, Brian Chan, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, David Chestnut, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Gio Corsi, Nick Cottrell, Cutter Crow, Nick Cummings, Daniel Diamore, Colin Davenport, Daniel Delanikos, Mitchell Durkash, Knight Draft, David Ellis. Martha Emery, Joe Finelli, Eric Figgenbeiner, Fotios Frangos, Michael Gallier, Chris Galvin, Blake Garcia, Connor Gashian, Alex Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem Al Ghanem, Toothless Gibbon, Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, Miranda Grubba, Tyler Harris, Kyle Hagel, Asa Haas, Azan Isa El Ricey, Josh Yeager, Greg Julifs, Anton Kay, Jeremy Key, James Kinsler III, Ryan R. Kittredge, Jackson Lastiqua, Donald Laws, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Mark Liberto, Lou and Ray Loper, Elijah Lopez, Colin Love, Josh M., Ryan 
Ryan T. Mandel, Peter Mark, Michael Martinez, Sean Mason, Zachariah McAdoo, Joe McPartland, Wyatt McVeigh, Dennis Meinchin, Andrew Mendoza, Christopher Middling, Albert Miranda, Patrick Malloy, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Ryan Murdoch, Brian Nietzsche, Josh Netzel, Adam Nix, Donnie Noland, George Anthony Nunez, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Marius S. Peterson, Enrique Perez, Nicholas Perfect, James Perrone, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Jeff Pollard, Louis Powell, Lawrence F. Prokop, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Mark Richardson, Toby D. Riemenschneider, Austin Riley, Atenogenis Rojas, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, John Scholes, Chris Schaefer, Michael Shanholtz, Brandon Sharkey, Toby Schutman, Glendon Cole Simper, Joshua Smallwood, Andrew Smith, John Tabanillo, Ahmad Tamar, Joseph Thayer, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Tam Tran, Adam Van Kieran, Raymond Joshua Vargas, Michael Vecchio, Ogley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Troy Walters, Isaac Wastman, Damon Weathers, Mike Wayant, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zaniga, Hugo's Desk, Supershot ST, Wyatt Henry, Throw7, Infinite, Homeworld Hub, Mad Mock Media, Fabian, Mubarak, Sticks and Crits, Richter86, That Rescue Guy, Andrew, Ian, Chris, Dav9834, Donk2015, and Gavin. Hey, I've been watching Game of Thrones, as I said last week, and so quite a bit of horse violence. Horse violence? Yeah, like like violence upon horses. Peggy, 18. Peggy. Horse violence. <laughs> It's a little sad. Like, you know, I don't mind seeing someone's head get chopped off, but when someone's like slicing the guts out of a horse. Yeah. It's a little disturbing to me. You yeah. Know? By the way, just a quick Game of Thrones thing real quick. I meant to bring this up at the top. Erin is not usually home when I'm watching it. She's usually at work, but she's been home and she's been, you know, navigating around while I'm watching it. And she pointed out that it's so funny that they're constantly talking about how Jon Snow is a bastard and how they just call him bastard over and over again. Like constantly. It's constant. And I've been paying attention to it. Hey, bastard. Because he's like, you know, did you watch the show? No, I have oh, no idea. About oh, because he's like, he, he's like, he's literally a bastard. He has yeah. No, he has, yeah. Okay. But they constantly, the bastard of Winterfell. And I think, and I was watching a show yesterday where they're like, some woman was like, Jon Snow, the bastard of Winterfell, the, the son of some tavern slut. I'm like, this is how they talk about this guy for seasons and seasons. I'm like, we get it. Jon Snow is a bastard. How many times are we going to say it? <laughs> Jesus Christ, I'm in like the fifth <laughs> season already, you know? Bastard. Jon Snow is a bastard. The bastard of Winterfell. Tavern slut. It's also a bit mean. Like, yeah, it is. They say it very... It's like a bit rude. It's like the equivalent of going up to like some, like in medieval time, like a, if people in Skyrim were like, oh, you adopted. <laughs> <laughs> and just ran away from you every couple minutes. I don't know what's going on. Anyway, 